Welcome back to Steph's Business Bookshelf. This is episode 99, but stop the press because it's actually episode 100. So keep listening to hear something a little bit different. You're listening to Steph's Business Bookshelf, doing the reading so you don't have to. Welcome back. And that's right, friends. Episode 99 is episode 100, not because I have lost the plot, but because there was an episode zero. So episode 99 is the one to celebrate. I'm also just being really selfish because tomorrow, the 24th of November is my birthday. Today is the 23rd of November when this goes live. So I wanted the special episode to go out on my birthday week. I know that's just the kind of person I am. To celebrate this special milestone, I have enrolled the help of Kelly Irving to co-host this episode. And Kelly is interviewing me all about books. Now, if you don't know Kelly, she helps people unlock what's inside their heads so they can plan, write, and publish their best book as fast, fun, and pain-free as possible. She is a best-selling book coach, editor, and creator of the Expert Author Academy, and she nurtures authors from idea to implementation. Her unique method results in major book awards and publisher deals. She has never had a book rejected and transforms businesses from six to seven figure turnovers. Kelly is awesome. She's a great person to talk books with. She's incredibly well-read, as you would imagine, and has a background in editing and publishing. So... I'm going to hand over the mic to Kel to interview me about books. Hi, Steph. Hi, Kel. Thanks for joining me. (laughs) It was. I was going to say it's a pleasure and an honour as well to be able to turn the microphone around on you today. Give your readers or your listeners more so a little bit of a sense of who you are. Um, So I actually first connected with you because, well, I guess we've got one major thing in common Mm-hmm. And that is I help people write books and you help people read books. That is correct. So the way I would describe what I do is that I'm actually in the business of belonging and I think you are too. Um, you know, we read because it makes us feel a sense of belonging in the world and I also think that that is exactly the reason why we write So I feel like it's my role to make that meaningful connection between an author and a reader. And what you're doing in your work is kind of unpacking that for people, which I think is really, really, really strong. So to kick off, can you take us back to your childhood for a moment? Get the the leather couch out. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us. Uh, about a book or a reading experience that you had in the past, you know, growing up or whatever it is, that made you feel that sense of belonging? I think there's there's probably two that jump to mind. And the first one is the, the Enid Blyton books. And, you know, this comes with obviously the caveat that, you know, by well, by any standard, but certainly a more modern standard, there's things in there that are challenging and slightly problematic. But as a child, that is what I read, and, and I just love that escapism. And I think there was that belonging of, you know, I was I was in the Famous Five, or I was in the Secret Seven, or I was at one of the boarding schools, and, and it really gave me that sense of th- that friendship and that belonging to the group or belonging to that community, be it, you know, particularly with the ones that were set in boarding schools and stuff. And as a as a child, I was maybe, I don't know, maybe I was one of the only, the few that actually wanted to go to boarding school. I, I didn't, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. But that sense of the friendship and the, that just came out from the books. 
the the other one that that jumped to mind was I was I loved I had this I think it was a DK uh, Dolan Kingsley insight child like children's encyclopedia and again it was that escapism or that connection to the rest of the world and history and all these things in science and nature and what goes on in your body and and everything else that that book really opened up to the world and and or opened up the world to me and I think as, as a child, I always remember that particular book and obviously the, the famous five and the, the Enid Blyton books as well. But when I think particularly about nonfiction and even as a child, having that, that connection to what is real, but you've never experienced was really exciting. And my sister still laughs at me that my favorite book as a child was, was an encyclopedia. <laughs> but what a great example of a portal to, to almost another world like get, and that good great example too of that that belonging like understanding the world mm. um the other thing that I find really interesting about childhood is this is where we start to develop reading habits so what what was your kind of reading habit in the part like how not necessarily how did you learn to read but you know, like what kind of reading habits did you have and how do you think that that's developed? I was definitely the the kid under the covers trying to sneakily trick my parents into thinking I'd gone to sleep, but I was actually up awake and and reading. And it's funny because as a child, you're like, yeah, I've got this sus, they're, you know, silly old parents. <laughs> they don't know that I'm actually reading under the covers. And now I've got friends who have got kids who are the age that I was at the time. I'm like, oh yeah, you, you definitely didn't fool your parents at all. Like they definitely knew what you were up to. Uh, so that was as a, as a younger child, that was my, my reading habit was around, was the, the under the covers and trying to sneak those few extra pages in all the time. And then the other time was, and then probably as I got older, probably into that kind of pre-teen, teenage, teenage time, it was more around the binge reading books on holiday. And when we went on holidays as a family, it was often, it was a lot of time by the pool and things like that. And everyone had different reading material. So, and mine was always crime thrillers, which I would get through and so me and my dad would have a bit of a, an informal competition, actually no, a formal competition <laughs> on how many books we'd get through in a uh, you know, two week holiday. But what was quite good is we had quite similar reading preferences in terms of those kind of crime thrillers and those sort of fiction books. So we'd often, we could take several books and then both of us would churn through them and then we'd go and buy usually more at some point during the trip as well. Do you still have that competition with your dad? Yeah, sometimes it only comes up every so often. But recently, when they when because they're in the UK still, they went into lockdown earlier in the year when they went through the first phase, and he was going, "Oh, well, I've I've read you know six books this week or something like that." And I was thinking, "Well, hang on, that won't do. I'm working. How am I gonna how am I, <laughs> how am I gonna compete with this?" So yes, that definitely still happens. So um, that's kind of a nice segue because it reminds me of a conversation I have a lot with friends. Um, and I'm pretty sure you would have the same conversation. So they say to me, I just don't have time mm -hmm. for reading. How do you find so much time for reading? So what's your response to that? I think the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm very goal oriented. And so for me thinking about, well, okay, I know that I want to read 45 books this year, which was my 2020 book goal. The average book is... Three, so, so 250 pages roughly 
divide that by, you know, and actually starting to break it down into how many pages or how many, you know, what percentage, if I'm using my Kindle, do I need to read every day to, to stay on track? So I think for me, it is sometimes it is just a numbers game. And that sounds a little bit clinical and like it takes some of the fun away. But for me, that is part of the joy is, is the variety and a little bit of the volume of reading. So that's maybe that's less about the habit, more around the how I break down, how I read so much. But from a habit perspective, it is about it is a bit about replacement. And there's obviously great books on this around atomic habits and tiny habits, which are ones I'd hugely recommend. It's it's about finding what it is that you need to stop doing and replacing some of that. So whether that is social media time, whether that is TV, but it also attaching it to something. And this is something that's in both of those books attaching to something you're already doing. So for me, a really easy one is bed. So before I go to bed, I read for at least 10 minutes, but if not for you know, 30, 45, 60 minutes. And then at the weekend, I can afford to do a bit more during the day maybe, or, or actually put a couple of hours aside of a morning to read. So sometimes it's planning it, but most of the time it's just finding what are those small little cracks of time during the day that you know are gonna happen anyway, and that it's easy to go, oh yeah, now is gonna be the reading time without having to, force it into a point in your life or day that's just it's never going to work mm, I like that and I like I'm the same I I, I read before bed mm. so for me it's a no-brainer um like a total no-brainer but it, it is interesting other people's perspective on mm. that and that and that challenge that they find carving that yeah. time out um, I think the, the other thing as well, I'll just add, is I read in Naval uh, Ravikant's book recently, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, he was talking, he's a voracious reader, and he was saying that, uh, the, the quote was, read what you love until you love to read. And I just think that as well, if you're going to start somewhere, because a lot of people think, oh, I should read these things, or I should read those things, whatever. I think at first, just throw that in the bin and start with something you're actually going to enjoy reading, even if it is that trashy kind of uh romance novel or whatever it is is your is your guilty pleasure of reading if that's going to get you into the habit then then great mm, awesome okay so that that's a, a good transition point because this is your 100th episode or 99 mm -hmm. if we want to get specific <laughs> right because episode the first was one episode was episode zero yeah, episode yeah. zero yeah 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 <laughs> um so in that time this is going to be this is going to test your brain how many books do you reckon you've read read probably 80 or 90 yeah. in that time in that time but obviously there's you know I was using also have you it for those episodes that have happened in that last 100 episodes I've talked about books that I read before that time so so as someone who's read what was it 80 books, eight, eight, over 80, 80 books yeah, yeah. yeah how do you not get bored so what does because you've talked about fiction non-fiction right what does Steph's healthy book pyramid look like <laughs> Oh, I like that. That's that's going to be, I'm going to infographic that at some point. The healthy book pyramid. I think at the bottom you'd have, for me, it's things like productivity stuff because I I just, I struggle to get enough of productivity books, even though I know now, you know, having read quite a few of them, that there's lots of similar ideas coming up. But I always take away a new little nugget of idea or a new process or system to try. And I, because I love that experimentation and actually using myself as that, that guinea pig to go, all right, for the next month, I'm going to try this method or I'm going to try that particular model, whatever. So at the bottom, I'd have plenty of, of productivity. And I just think as well, it's, it's such an easy place to get some quick wins because Whilst I do read books partly, or you know, not going to not going to lie, largely for my own enjoyment. A lot, another very big part of that is to then share the the books with other people. So you, but at the same time, there's no point reading these books if you're not going to take 
anything away and actually apply it. So I think good practical books at the bottom, which generally I find is the productivity stuff, which is where you can actually make some changes. In the middle, I'd say actually a good amount of biographies and autobiographies. And I think that's always my go-to when I'm feeling a little bit over, you know, the sort of strictly kind of business books or marketing or even productivity or whatever. Let's go to some real life stuff. Let's actually read someone's story because I think those are the ones that's, that can change your mind in a different way and help you see things in a different way that's beyond just another model or theory. And then somewhere and then you've kind of got the other stuff at the top, maybe the leadership and marketing and that kind of thing. And then probably right at the top of the pyramid is the, the little and often, I'd say, is some of those books that are the real dip in and out of ones that are almost your reference books. So things like Ray Dalio's Principles, uh, probably some of the Ryan Holiday, Stoicism type books, the ones that you, um, Tim Ferriss's books, The Tribe of Mentors and uh, the, the ones that you can kind of dip in and out of, read it for five minutes get some good ideas and go away again you don't actually have to sit and absorb the whole book at once nice interestingly in that like a lot of oh i mean they're all non-fiction right even the auto or you mentioned mm. autobiography biography but they're all non-fiction um and they're quite pragmatic quite practical as you mm. said like productivity and stuff so how important, especially in nonfiction, do you think is story? Massively. And what I really notice, having now read quite a lot of books, obviously, is the difference between books that are written by journalists or researchers and books that are written by, I'm going to use the kind of really broad term of subject matter experts. So people who have maybe lived it or noticed something and they're, they're sharing their observations or they're, or they're curators and they're kind of bringing things together on a particular topic. The ones written by journalists, certainly in, in my experience, and of course there's always exceptions, are a cut above in terms of that storytelling and the ability to bring an idea to life in a really human way rather than, and, and just going beyond the theory. And Malcolm Gladwell is a great example of that. Shane Snow is a great example of that. And, uh, and Daniel Pink as well. The people, and they're not always people who have started in journalism in this kind of business non-fiction well I mean they've kind of started non-fiction I guess in, a, in an indirect way but they've never they're not necessarily people who have started in that business world they're often people who have started in sports or in local news or whatever it happens to be but they've learned the art of the hook and learned the art of bringing people in and helping them live a story or a situation or a case study, which they then apply to sometimes some what could be quite dry topics and in the hands of other people probably would be. Mm, that's really interesting. So if we think about like the hook, bringing people in story, so that's the stuff that really engages you from the get-go. So, so would you say that's the stuff that makes a book really memorable for you? I think so. And I think it is how the quality of the storytelling around those particular examples, case studies, research, whatever it happens to be, because without that, it they all do start to merge into each other, let's be honest. And yeah, you know, there'll be me those multiple times where I'm like, oh, was that example in this book or that book? Because it could really it could have been in either. So the the style of the author and the style of the the writing is often the thing that I'll remember a little bit more and be like, that that has to have been a Gladwell or that has to have been a Daniel Pink book or a Noah Yuval Yo Yo Harari book or something like that. Because you just think, it's on that topic, it could be these three people, but what? how was the story told? Like, what's the bit I'm remembering? And you start to, especially after, you know, again, reading multiple books by, a sim by the same authors, you start to get a sense of the style as well. Yeah, okay. So we're talking about as well, it's almost like professional 
writers versus mm. aspiring authors. Yeah. So do you see there's a place for both? Because I would imagine you read a lot from both categories, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I get sent a lot by the latter category, obviously, as well, because that's the that's yeah, a lot of people in our, in our network and people who I know who are writing books. So there's absolutely room for both. And I think there's there's plenty of examples of books that are by those aspiring authors or who then become authors, obviously, because <laughs> they write a book and and have been really valuable and have been very enjoyable and and they're generally really good starting points and I think when I when I'm referring or recommending books those ones by the more subject matter expert I find myself referring or uh, recommending them to people as a really good starting point because generally they're that little bit higher level and much broader and go across a broad spectrum maybe they mention some case studies they mention some examples from their own experience from their clients experience or from the businesses they've worked in, etc. And then that's a really good place for people, most people to start. And then if they want more, then here's five other books that I would recommend off the back of that one if you want to go deeper into the different elements of it. Nice. So, okay, so that's that's what makes it memorable. Let's flip this. What makes a book really, really, like, let's be honest, like quite shit? Because I think we all know these books. <laughs> Unfinishable, yeah. <laughs> Unfinishable. That's a good description, right? A book, there's a book that you can't put down and there's a book that you can't put down quick enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I like that, yeah. Um, for me, the thing that nothing grates me more, we're talking about storytelling, nothing upsets me more in a book than a fable. And a really fake, horrible story that is just shoehorned in there to to make a you know to to sell a story or sorry to sell a model or to sell a theory or whatever when there is absolutely no need for it. Now, I rarely don't finish a book because I you know part of the reason I'm reading them is to share them and review them etc. So I feel like I have a bit of a duty to save other people the pain of reading it. So I will go through it and then stop other people making the same mistake as I did. So I feel like there's a compound effect to my time spent. So that's good. <laughs> but the there are there have been a couple that I've just gone, no, this is just not worth it. And you've got to give us an example. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. One of them, it's on my I've still got a copy on my shelf. If I've ever gifted this to anyone, it's because I've had an extra couple of copies to uh, I wanted to get rid of. <laughs> Disclaimer, <laughs> apology yeah, exactly, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Still got one to go, so look out, everyone. Uh presents by Amy Cuddy. I just couldn't, I couldn't finish it. And I know I'm not the only one, and know a few people have, have found this as well, because I think that is the solid example. And I don't know if this is true, this is just my reading into it. Is almost a solid example of the book that your publisher, you signed a book deal for two books, three books, whatever, and it's the book you had to write, but maybe you didn't want to, or you didn't have enough material for it. So you just filled it with, I mean, it's just quite strange. Like it's filled with tweets and emails that she got from people who have tried her various methods and, and this is the results they had. And it's just, there's there's not much to it, which is a real shame because I've seen her speak and was lucky enough to see her speak in Melbourne a few couple of years ago now. And she was fantastic. And that was the, the tour for that particular book. So I thought, excellent, got the book. And it just had no, bed no reflection on the the talk she gave. And that was, you know, there was quite a bit of repetition from some of her previous work and stuff as well. So things like that where it's, it's it feels just forced. And similarly as well, the thing that makes me roll my eyes a lot and there was, I actually read a book quite recently and I put this in the review about it, is it would have been a really solid three blog posts, like longer form blog posts, 
but someone decided it should be a book. <laughs> and therefore, because it's a book, it must be 250 pages, 200 pages, 300 pages, whatever. So I think that's when it's a real shame because the, the real quality of the idea gets lost and diluted amongst the guff that has to go in there as a result. Yeah, so there's a thing that I talk about with authors and it's if it's hard to write, it's mm. hard to read. Mm. And I, I think what you've just described is that sense like she actually probably found it really hard to write that book. I'm sure. She had to write yeah. that book. She didn't write it from a place of enjoyment um, and it transfers onto the reader. And so, you know, and what you've been talking about in your know, reading starts by enjoying it. Mm. So <laughs> you've yeah. got to, you almost need to be selective with your choices because um you will pick up on that and and, and I wonder I mean I, I don't know actually if you've ever had this conversation but people who have found it hard to start a reading habit have you ever actually asked them like what it is that they're reading yeah sometimes and sometimes it is that you know point I was making earlier around it's the the forced read so I think I should read this book that every either everyone's been talking about or it's about this really important topic that everyone knows about but it's just you just your heart's not in it. So I think if it's not going to be and maybe the, and also maybe the book's terrible as well. Like that. <laughs> That's also a very valid excuse for the, the reading habit being hard to build. But I think this is where recommendations come in handy and actually asking people, right, where's a good place to start on this topic? And that's why even you know, coming back to the books I mentioned earlier, Atomic Habits and Tiny Habits, very similar, like a lot of overlap because because well, of the subject matter. But I would recommend them very differently to different people because of the style of writing, the, the type of advice it gives and the and obviously then knowing the person and what they wanted as well. So whilst they're you know, in many ways identical, the, the ideas in the books, but the they appeal, I think, to quite different audiences or they would work better or would suit different audiences. The other question in this is, OK, like how quickly do you reckon you can judge a book? You know, we talk about judging a book by its cover, but how many pages in do you reckon that you can judge a book by? I think it's less about the pages, more around the chapters. And I found this really, actually, this was, was emphasised really well by a book I read recently, which was Paul Jarvis's Company of One, because that, and that's one of the ones I think, and I love the idea of it. It's a five-star idea, but I thought the book was was diluted by that that fluff that I, that I mentioned so that one the first two chapters were really solid like really good and I was like this is going to be one of the best books I've ever read <laughs> and then you get to that kind of third the difficult third chapter should we call it and I think at that point it's when you know are we on to something or is this where it starts to get a little bit harder? And look, you know, third chapter is, you know, maybe that, and again, it depends on the structure of the book, of course. So that's not obviously a hard and fast rule. But I think if the first chapter is strong and you're like, okay, there's a good idea here. It's a good choice to, to continue. If by the end of the first chapter, you're like, I think this is everything the book's going to actually tell me, then maybe it is a good time to, to cut your losses. And, and the other, I heard, like, I can't remember who it was now, but I heard someone talking recently about reading the first chat or the first couple of chapters, looking at the contents sections for the middle chapters and then reading the last chapter. And I think that was such good advice because there are a lot of books that I think, and less so definitely with like biographies and autobiographies and things like that. So I'm talking about the kind of the other nonfiction type books that if you did that, probably 
I don't know, 40%, 50% of the books I've read, you'd get the gist enough to be dangerous, enough to get the ideas, and also to confirm whether you do actually want to read the bit in the middle that you maybe skimmed over. Mm. What about though, okay, so we're talking about skimming, but that's still quite, you know, that's sort of taking beginning, middle and end almost into mm. account. If you're in a bookstore and you've got five minutes, let's say quickly to skim through a book, decide if you're going to buy it, how would you do that? What would you look for? Number one, I don't think I'd ever torment myself by only giving myself five minutes to go into a bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> Just asking for trouble, unless I know, unless I know what I want, obviously. Squeezing, um, squeezing a bookshop, <laughs> not before you have to get on a plane or anything. Yeah, well, no, there is a bit of that. So obviously the blurb, the blurb on the back is yeah, obviously very useful. The other thing as well would be the, the contents page. And I know we've talked about contents pages before, Kel, and you're, you just love them. And I was like, oh yeah, sometimes I go back to them and that I really don't reference them. But the time that I will look at the contents is other than when I'm re-reviewing the book and I'm just trying to get a sense of where the thing I'm looking for might be, obviously, navigation, is when I'm looking at a book for the very first time, I've never heard of it, or I've you know, heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. I read the blurb on the back. I open and look at the contents page. And that is usually the thing that will give me a bit of an idea. And look how big the text is. <laughs> oh, I'm big on that too. I must say, I, um, I, I can't stand, like it's the enjoyment factor, right? Mm. I actually can't stand reading books with really small print and you find yeah. like the older the book you know and they, they yeah, yeah. and the more print run that it's had or something you get this like almost like size eight or less sometimes even smaller print yeah. and it's well, I think something, yeah yeah well built to last I reckon it's on like must be on like a size eight with an eight point leading or something as well it's uh, squished <laughs> yeah I can't stand that I must say like you know in terms of like the reading reading for me is an experience and I think you know in terms of that if you want to get into reading you've got to enjoy it yeah it is small stuff like that 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 makes a huge difference absolutely um okay so are you then a highlighter a post-it noter a dog tagger like how do you how do you make notes and and source your info as you're reading yeah. It depends, obviously, because I do read a lot on my Kindle as well. So there's two different, obviously, two different methods. Uh, if it's a physical book and it's my own coffee, not someone else's, I definitely dog ear and I turn pages. It's really annoying, though, if, if the book is really good and there's ideas on both sides and I then have to dog ear the bottom corner as well, which puts my system out, which I don't <laughs> like. But uh, the, yeah, so dog, dog earing the, the corners, which I know is sacrilegious to a lot of people. I'm very sorry, but you're not going to like the next thing because I do also highlight in the books as well now that I'm a little bit more lazy on because sometimes if I'm sat in bed and I'm just like I'm not going to get my highlighter out because you know I'm just I don't have it next to the bed all the time so but definitely dog earring and I just find for, for me because I then go back to the book afterwards to write the notes for the podcast and things that's my easiest way in a physical book to just go these were the these were the bits that either summarize an idea there's a great quote on there was a good example or a case study etc but it also forces me to read the whole page and back into context, because I think that's the other thing sometimes I find on the Kindle. And I've got quite an old Kindle, like kind of one of the early generation ones, about eight, oh God, we're getting on for nine years old. So the highlighting function is a little bit clunky on it. And what I find is a bit annoying, well, number one is if books haven't been set up properly and what you highlight then doesn't translate to what you look up as your highlights afterwards, that is really irritating. But when you just read the highlight and it's then out of context, you're like, oh, what was that in relation to? So even on my 
Kindle, I'll generally bookmark a page to make me read the whole page again, rather than just highlighting an idea, unless it's just a quote and I just want the, you know, to pull the quote. I then also use the, whilst I prefer to read on the Kindle device, because there's no backlight and it's a, just a nicer reading experience, I do use the Kindle app on my iPad to actually go back through and filter through the bookmarks and highlights that I've made on my actual Kindle, because that is actually a bit much better experience on there. And then I can copy and paste into my notes and stuff like that as well. Mm. And so you do keep notes. Do you have like documents like saved as no and every so often I'll put something in my phone and I'll make a note usually just in my notes app on my on my iPhone but I'm not actually very good at writing as I go because like you said Akel it's reading is such an experience and I think right breaking that up and and pausing the time you just lose that flow so whilst I like the I like the idea of it and I know that I imagine some of my thoughts from a book might be a bit more thorough if I did do it I also wonder if that's the, the loss of the flow of reading to keep sort of starting and stopping with making notes would actually affect the, A, the time it takes me to read it, which I think I think makes a huge difference to your enjoyment of a book, and also the, the overall flow of, of reading it and reading it as a reader. Mm. And it just reminds yeah. me of English class, and that pains me. <laughs> yeah. You're so system, it's interesting because you're so system driven and like you've got mm. a process, but I think one of the hardest things is coming back to those highlighted bits or dog tagging or whatever. Yeah. I think that's the thing that we find quite difficult. Yeah. Do you have any advice around that? Start a podcast that forces you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but I think like, well, yeah, I don't probably recommend that, but <laughs> just a ridiculous idea that no one should do but the the thing that that does help is having some formal or informal way of sharing what you've learned and I think that's the thing for me is now and sometimes when I go back to the the dog ears and the notes and the highlights that I've made it's maybe you know sometimes it's six months sometimes it's a year after I've actually read the book just because that's when it sort of fits better in the podcast whatever but that forces me to actually remember what is the thing I remember about this book and I think sometimes that distance is really unhelpful because you feel like you have to read the whole book again to, to remember it and, and again obviously it depends on how much you enjoyed the book and stuff as well whereas other times it's really useful to be like oh actually this bit of the book really stuck with me that's really relevant for sharing the ideas or that's really relevant for really thinking about the stickiness of the ideas in the book and then going back to it and saying like, oh, wow, I've completely forgot about this, but this is, you know, wish I'd remembered that, or this is my, way more relevant for me now. And, and getting that, that almost that reignited love for the, the author of the book, the ideas, whatever it is, and, and also just a refresher and a reminder, because like I said earlier, if we're not putting anything into practice from all the books we're reading, I, I wonder, well, unless you're just purely reading for enjoyment, which is a very fine reason as well, what the point is of reading particularly a lot of nonfiction. Yeah, interesting. You know what? I love how um, we've almost come full circle because we mm. started talking about reading and writing and this sense of belonging and actually what you've just described, sharing information, sharing ideas, being able to talk about mm -hmm. your experience or what you learn from stuff is exactly that. Like it's a classic example of belonging and, yeah. um, and, and community. It's probably why like book clubs are so oh, relevant. And, and so um, uh, so important also. Mm. So before I let you go, 
a couple of quick things. If you were a book cover, oh. what would you be? What would you look like and why? I'd be black and white with red text. Why? <laughs> um, because that is all my clothes. I was going to say, you probably put some context because we're looking at each other on a video and you have black and red on. Exactly. Uh, yes, well, I think that's the thing. Like, if your book cover is going to be the thing that it's like the clothes of the book, isn't it? It says it kind of gives an a sense of the identity of the book, the type of thing it is, and also who it's for. And yeah, like, I wear it all black and white and red, really. So there we go. Awesome. So what haven't we asked you that we probably should? What haven't you asked is what do I never want to read about ever again? Which is, there's quite a few things actually, but I never want to read a fable. I think if everyone, if this could just be the, the formal end of anyone writing fables, that would be excellent. Thank you. I never want to read one ever again. They're awful. And I also never want to read as much as I think it's hugely important for much of the work that, that I do and that a lot of other people do. Google's Project Oxygen and Project Aristotle, just stop referencing them. Like, they're just done. <laughs> it's in every book. The end. Like, it's fine. Everyone knows, everyone knows about it now. So unless you found something interesting in the research that no one else has, just stop it. Awesome. <laughs> Steph, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been lovely to um, to share some of the things that I've learned about you through conversing with you with other people. So I know that people are going to get a lot of value from this.